I'm happy to introduce our guest speaker to you today, Dr. Michael Didway. Uh, Dr. Didway has had a broad ministry over his career. Uh, he served as pastor and associate pastor in other churches. Uh, but for the last 10 years, he's been the dean of the, at the College of Christian Studies at Anderson University, also serving there at Anderson as a professor of Christian ministry, teaching many different courses, uh, including preaching. Uh, founding editor of Preaching Magazine. I get that uh, on my desk. It came in a week or so ago. Uh, founding editor of Preaching Magazine. I'll tell you this. I didn't say this in first service, but I'd love to tell this story. Uh, Lisa once asked me, she said, does it bother you to know that you're preaching to a guy who is the editor of Preaching Magazine? I said, well, it didn't, but now it does. He's also author and editor of five books, two, of, two or three of which I have in my own personal library. Uh, but most importantly, he and his wife, Laura, and his son, Stephen, are members of Mount Airy Baptist Church. And we welcome him. So glad that he's here today to share with us this good word. Would you welcome Dr. Michael Didway? Well, good morning, Mount Airy. It is always a, a delight to, uh, to be here. Usually when I am uh, here, uh, it is because the pastor is uh, on vacation or on a mission trip or visiting the world's greatest grandbaby. <laughs> he says that. I, guess, I assume it has to be true. So, uh, but, uh, so it's, a, it's a joy to, to be with you again. Uh, it's uh, uh, a little intimidating, talking about being intimidating, having editor preaching magazine, you know, having the host pastor there. Usually when you get invited to preach, the host pastor's gone. So I hope that, uh, I hope that after today's message, he'll still feel like he was glad he was at Mount Airy rather than visiting somewhere else. As you know, our, uh, we've been going through a series on the I Am Sayings of Jesus. So open your Bible, if you will, to the Gospel of John. The 10th chapter, we'll be looking at that in just a moment. John, John chapter 10. While you're looking at that, let me share with you, some of you know that our oldest son, James, recently got married. Uh, Pastor Keith did the ceremony for he and Caitlin. They have now moved to North Carolina, where they are going to be starting graduate school. They got a little uh, apartment near one of their campuses, uh, where they'll be going, and they, both, they love dogs and cats, but they feel like in that apartment that they're in, they really can't take care of anything like a dog or a cat, but they wanted a pet, so they got a tarantula, a pet tarantula, yep, <laughs> one of those. <laughs> We're going to be visiting with them soon. Uh, I know we're going to enjoy a time of fellowship and take them out to dinner and things like that. There's one thing I can guarantee you will not happen. I will not be holding the pet tarantula. There are just some things that uh, you know better. You can, okay, we can take that picture off now. That's a, <laughs> don't even like looking at it. <laughs> you know, there are things that you just, you just choose not to do, right? Uh, I don't do Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Any, anybody got a witness for me there that uh, you should? Okay, good, good. There are other wise people in the crowd. Don't do that. I don't, I don't ride motorcycles. I guess I could. I could probably learn to do that. Uh, 
my wife would insist on raising the insurance before I did, but uh, uh, don't just choose not to do that. Um, there's just some things you don't do. I don't do parachutes, okay? Now, my wife insists that on her 60th birthday, she wants to jump out of an airplane. My own philosophy is, as long as that airplane's got gas and tires, there's no reason for me to get out early <laughs> before it lands, you know, safely on the ground. You just choose not to do that. Now, there are some things you choose not to do. There are other things that you can't do, even if you want to do them. For example, I, I can't fly. Oh, I can fly in one of those long metal tubes, but just to flap my arms and fly, can't do it. When I was in high school, I played Charlie Brown in the, a musical that we did, and uh, there is one of the lines, there's a song, uh, and a line that Charlie Brown has when he says sarcastically, I think I'll flap my arms and fly to the moon. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> can't do it. No matter how hard I try, the laws of physics are against me. Uh, I can't give a $10 million gift to a great cause. Wish I could. I can't give a $5 million gift. Can't give a million dollar gift. <laughs> can't give a half million dollar gift. You know, it's, it's looking pretty bad there, I, I can tell. Uh, I mean, it would be fun to be a big time philanthropist, wouldn't it? Be able to give big gifts to great causes, but... I don't have that kind of money. What about you? Can you think of some things that you can't do either? Things that you might want to do, but you can't. Whether you want to do them or not, you're just not capable of doing them. When John 10, we come to another one of Jesus' I am sayings. Uh, last week, Pastor Keith talked about the first part of this chapter where Jesus says, I am the door. And there Jesus is referring to the fact that back in biblical times, the sheep at night would stay in an enclosure. In fact, if you were here last week, you probably saw a picture of the, the uh, little stone fence went around with an opening in it. And at night, the sheep would be ushered into this enclosure. And then the shepherd would lay down and sleep in the opening of the enclosure, literally becoming the door for the sheep to keep the sheep in, to keep predators out. Now, that's an illustration that Jesus uses to help us understand that he is the way to gain access to God. He is the door to an abundant life. Well, today we're going to continue looking at that same section of Scripture, and we see Jesus developing that idea even more when he says, I am the good shepherd. Turn to John 10 in your Bible or your Bible app and your device, and let's look at what Jesus is talking about as we read beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. 
The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the good shepherd? One thing that's interesting to note is that Jesus does not use the normal Greek word for good. Now, the most common word that would be used for good was the word agathos. Uh, if you want to say, man, I had a good meal. Uh, you got a good grade. You know, that, that was pretty good. You, that's the word you would, that you would use in that time. You'd say agathos. Uh, in uh, Luke, when the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word he uses is agathos. But here in John 10, interestingly enough, Jesus uses a different word. He uses the word kalos, which has a much more exalted meaning. It refers to something that's not just good, but something that's extraordinary, something that's beautiful, that's noble, uh, something that's above and beyond Literally, Jesus is saying, literally the words he says in verse 11 are, I am the shepherd, the beautiful one, the noble one, the one who's unlike any other shepherd you've ever known. So what is it about Jesus that makes him the good shepherd in this exalted sense? Well, there's a lot here in these verses. We could spend a lot of time talking about these truths about God's love and care for us. But there is an important truth that ties it all together. As the good shepherd, Jesus will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Get that. If you don't hear anything else I say today, remember that. Jesus will do for you what you can't do for yourself. So what what is it that Jesus does for you that you can't do for yourself? Well, for one thing, he knows you more than you know yourself. He knows you more than you know yourself. Jesus knows you as only one who created you can know you. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Now, last week, Pastor Keith talked about how the sheep would learn to recognize the voice of the shepherd so that even if the flocks got intermingled, Uh, when it was time to separate them, the the shepherd would cry out to his flock and the sheep would recognize his voice and they would come and follow their shepherd. But it's not enough that the sheep know the shepherd's voice. The good shepherd also knows the sheep. To him, each one in the flock has a name, has a unique identity. It's good to know You and I are not just anonymous faces in the crowd when it comes to Jesus. The Lord knows you. He knows who you are. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. He knows where you're going. The 139th Psalm, the psalmist says this. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. 
For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Lord knew you when you were a tiny speck in your mother's womb. He's known you every day of your life. In Luke 12, Jesus tells us he knows the numbers of hairs, the number of hairs on your head. Now granted, for some of us, that's, that's easier than others, you know, right? That's a, that's, but isn't that amazing? God knows you intimately. He knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He knows what's good for you and for me. And I can think about times in my life when there's something I wanted and I didn't get it. And later I look back and realize if I'd gotten that, it would not have been a good thing. It would not have been for my best. There are a couple times in my life when I had job opportunities and they really looked appealing and I thought, man, I'd, I'd really love to see that and it didn't happen. And then later I looked back and said, I'd have been a horrible fit for that job. Or I can think of one situation where uh, not long after I would have gone there, the place blew up and there was a terrible crisis and I'd have been right in the middle of that if I had gotten that, uh, that job. You know, sometimes God shows his love for us by not giving us what we ask for. He knows us too well to give us everything we want. He knows who we are. He knows our past. But most important, he knows your future. Listen again to that last, verb, that last verse from the psalm. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows what your future is going to be. He knows what you could never know about your future. You and I don't know what the future holds. Poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. We might think we know what the future is going to be. We make elaborate plans only to see them dashed when some unexpected event or some crisis comes along. The writer of Proverbs puts it this way, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. But you know, rather than a source of frustration, that should be a source of a joy, a reason for confidence and assurance. Because even though you and I cannot know what lies ahead, we can trust the one who does. As the gospel song put it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living. All because he lives. The God who created you, the God who loves you, is the one who holds your future in his hands. That's a source of confidence. That's a source of peace. Even when tough times come your way, we know they will not last forever. Because God, God has a future 
and a plan for you if you put your faith in Christ. As the good shepherd, Jesus will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Part of that is because he knows you more than you know yourself. But there's another reason that he's your good shepherd, and that is he protects you from those you could not stop alone. The good shepherd not only knows your future, he protects your present. Looking back at that text, start in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now, what does Jesus mean when he's referring to the wolf? Well, that's the image that Jesus is using to talk about Satan, talk about the evil one. Over in 1 Peter 5, the apostle will use an image of a different animal. He'll say, your enemy, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants nothing more than to make you a slave to sin, to make you to destroy your impact for God, to devastate your life. Satan is the wolf who wants to attack you. Well, who's the hired hand that Jesus is talking about? Well, in that context, in that time, he's referring to the political and religious leaders of his day who are more interested in using and exploiting the people rather than protecting them. Most likely, he's drawing on Ezekiel chapter 34, where God is critical of exactly those groups, the ones he calls the shepherds of Israel, the kings, the aristocracy, the Jewish religious leaders who are failing to care for the sheep. And God says, since the human leaders will not care for the sheep, God tells Ezekiel, I, the Lord, will become the shepherd. And then there's an amazing prophecy in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And now Jesus comes along and says, I am that shepherd. I am that good shepherd who will look after you, who will protect you. Why do we need protection? Because Satan wants to destroy you. And rather than help you, there are those who would lead the flock astray, who would use the people to satisfy their own greed, their own hunger for power, rather than meeting the needs of people. Now in that day, it were the religious leaders who took advantage of the poor through the temple, through the sacrificial system. They were the Pharisees who put huge burdens on the common people beyond what they could fulfill. But what about today? We still need protection from the evil one. He's still out to get us. He's still out to devastate your life. But there are those who would use the church and God's people to instead accomplish their own purposes. They are the hired hands. They're the TV preachers who prey on the poor and elderly, raising millions of dollars to buy private jets and personal mansions. There are politicians who pretend to speak for the church, but who only want to use believers to satisfy their own desire for power and position. They are the 21st century version 
of the hired hands that Jesus condemns in John 10. Those who would use the church, but they do not love the church. They do not love Christ. And in contrast, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand wants to use you for his own gain. The wolf wants to destroy you. But Jesus loves you so much, he laid down his own life to protect you. When you want to know what to do in your life, when you need to make a decision, when you need to choose a direction, be careful. When you hear the voices of those who would use you and then abandon you. Listen for the voice of the one who will protect you from the evil one. As the good shepherd, Jesus will do for you what you can't do for yourself. He does that because he knows you more than you know yourself. And also because he protects you from those you could not stop alone. But there's a third thing Jesus does for you that you can't do for yourself. And it's the most important of all. He purchases, he purchases your salvation with his own life. He purchases your salvation with his own life. There's nothing in life more important than your eternal destiny. Where will you spend eternity? Even if you should live to be 100 years old, 150 years old, imagine you could live to be 200 years old. That length of time is like a split second of light in light of where you'll spend eternity. Imagine one grade of salt in a vast ocean. And then imagine that you multiply that ocean by thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands. That's like what your present earthly life is in comparison to eternity. Where you spend eternity is the most important issue you'll ever face. That's why what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me is the greatest gift we could ever receive. Look back at the text beginning in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the gospel. That's the good news. In Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is vital because it contains the way that we can be saved. But saved from what? The Bible tells us we are held in bondage and sin. We have turned away from what God created us to be. We've rebelled against him. In Romans 3, 10 and 11, Paul writes, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, sin is not the exception. It's the constant for all of humanity. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's will for our lives. We are all sinners. And the result of sin is not embarrassment or inconvenience. It's not like getting a parking ticket. Now, the Bible tells us that the result of sin 
is spiritual death. I'm not sure we always really understand the devastating consequences of sin. How utterly lost we are in sin apart from Christ. Scripture is very plain. Sin corrupts us utterly. Sin produces separation from God. Sin results in death because at its, at its core, sin is rebellion against God. No matter what individual sins you have committed, at its heart, sin is rebellion against God. It is choosing to go your own way, to reject the path that God has set for you. Sin is to reject his authority and to insist on your authority. And the result of that sin is death. Writing to the Ephesians about their life before Christ, Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Apart from Christ, you aren't just having problems. You're just not lacking direction. You're not enjoy, just enjoying less than your best life now. You're dead. Your spirit is stone cold dead. We need a savior because our souls are in the morgue. You know, we have a nursing school over at Anderson University. They have a lovely building, and in that building, they have a cadaver lab. And right off the cadaver lab is a storage area, storage room, where they keep the bodies while they, they're waiting. Then they bring them out for the nurses to study and work with, and then they put them back, and they, they have that storage area, and they have a lock on the outside of that storage room because you don't want people just kind of walking in and walking into the storage room where those bodies are, but... Interesting thing, there's no lock on the inside of the room. The dead bodies don't get up and move on their own. Dead bodies can't do anything. That's why you and I need a Savior. Because apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. We are separated from the Father. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And when we draw, when we act in rebellion against God, we draw the inevitable paycheck of death. And there's nothing we can do about that on our own. That's why the gospel is good news. Because what we could not do for ourselves, God did for us through Christ. There are people who don't want a Savior. There are people who want to do it by themselves. I'm not such a bad person. I live pretty good, pretty good. I'm sure better than some of those hypocrites down at the church. It's amazing to me to learn how many people, even some people that identify themselves as Christians, believe that admission into heaven is going to be based on the results of a cosmic scale. And on one side of the scale, you put all your good deeds. And on the other side of the scale, you put your bad deeds. And St. Peter will tally it up, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you get to go to heaven. The Bible says nothing about good deeds versus bad deeds. It says you are dead apart from Christ. It says you cannot pile up enough good deeds to get undead. You and I are dead apart from Christ because we can never be good enough to compensate for our rebellion against God. Our only hope is a Savior who can do for us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's what the gospel is all about. That Christ gave himself for us on a cross, reaching out to us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and breathing new life into us. How do we gain access to that incredible gift? We accept it through faith and repentance. Don't you love John 3.16? It's the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That whosoever believeth on him means to have faith in him, means to surrender your life to him. Stories told about a missionary who was trying to translate the, the Bible, the New Testament, into a language that had never had a Bible before. And he was living among the people and he was struggling because when he got to John 3.16, he was struggling because this, this language, this native language, had no word for faith or believe. One day, one of the native workers who was helping him came into the house. He'd been working. He was hot and sweaty, and he went over to one of the chairs in the corner of the room, and he just plopped down on it. The missionary said to him, tell me what you just did to that chair. The native used the word to describe what he had just done in, in dropping himself onto the chair, and that's the word the missionary used in John 3.16 to describe what we must do to Christ throw ourselves down on him, to put our weight down on him, to depend on him and him alone, relying on him to hold you up. It is recognizing that we are dead apart from Christ, hopeless to do anything about it, but that through Christ, you can be freed from sin. You can enter into a new relationship with God. As the good shepherd Jesus will do for you what you can't do for yourself. He laid down his life for you. And he offers you an abundant life and an eternal life when you commit your life to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how amazing it is to realize that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we do not deserve that. We have not earned that. There's nothing we can do to make that happen. But Father, thank you that even though we were lost, you made it possible for us to be found. Lord, how we celebrate that good news of the gospel. And Father, if there's someone here today that's never experienced that good news in their own life, they could even be a member of the church. They could feel like they're living a good life. But they've never come to that moment in their life when they have thrown themselves on Jesus and depended on him alone for their salvation. Father, might today be that day, the day when they do that. Father, there might be some here that did that at one time, but their lives have not been living that way. They've let other priorities get in the way. And Father, perhaps today can be a day of recommitment, rededication for them. Father, in whatever way you want to work in our lives, we pray that your spirit would, would touch us, 
would draw us to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.